Its beaches are the stuff holiday brochures are made of. And tourism is a major money spinner for one of the world's poorest countries. But Kenya's tropical paradise hides a dark secret within. We've been on a harrowing journey. From nightclubs where European men pick up 12-year-old Kenyan girls to this orphanage where children as young as six have found sanctuary after sexual abuse by foreign tourists. A journey into a world of cruelty and desperation, a world we could scarcely have imagined. They sort of feel that they can do anything they like when they come to Kenya and get away with it. Mombasa after midnight and the city's clubs are filling with white male European tourists ogling and fondling teenage girls. The teenagers wear high heels or pay a bribe at the door to get in. The ultimate prize is a Mzungu or white man who will pay for sex five times what a Kenyan labourer can earn in a day. But the price these girls are paying is a stolen childhood. Anastasia says she's 13 now and has been prostituting herself since she slept with a British tourist at the age of 10. A crime which, back in Britain, would be classed as rape. Her parents couldn't even afford school shoes, so she set out for a better life amid the bright lights of Mombasa. That life is sharing a flat with a fellow prostitute, Leila, who is 14 and both girls say the number of children involved is growing. When I started at the age of 12, I could go into a nightclub. Maybe I can get 10 to 20 girls. At least you can count and know that one, that one, that is a prostitute. But now there are many all over the place. Sometimes I do get stressed. I ask myself or I ask God, what have I got done wrong? I'm still a child and I'm doing this. Three years ago, a study by the UN Children's Agency, UNICEF, warned that there were thousands of girls like Leila, but that was before Kenya was plunged into political violence and economic crisis and a drought which has left 10 million Kenyans without enough food to eat. The author of the UNICEF study now reckons her findings are an underestimate. The study pretty strongly demonstrated that it was approximately 30% of the population of children between the ages of 12 to 18 who were engaged in some form of sex work. It's an astonishingly high figure. How many thousands of people are we talking about? We're talking about 15 to 20,000 children. The researchers that I worked with when I conducted the study all tell me now that they have a lot of visual evidence of an increasing numbers of younger and younger children. Just two miles from Mombasa's beachfront hotels and you're a world away. We found local tribesmen dancing in memory of a dead friend. Hardly anyone has a job in this village and the local elders say they're battling to stop their children from heading to the beach in search of a white man with a wallet full of cash. When you go to the beach, you will get a, a, a European, eh, a foreigner who will give you money and then they just flock there. 
We had heard that resorts north of Mombasa were the centre of the underage sex trade, so we drove for about an hour to a village near the town of Malindi. And the scale of what we found left us profoundly shocked. Teenagers shelling maize told us it was normal for young children to sleep with African men in the low season to prepare for rich foreigners later. And the village elder was so concerned about his village's children that he sent several families with their 12 and 13 year old girls and boys to talk to us. So we have a group of children here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of you. Can you tell me how many of you have had sex with foreigners on the beach? One, two, three, four. Four of you. Four of the ten of you. Almost half. It was Fatuma's story which affected us the most. She's 13 now, but she says she was driven by hunger to sell herself to two European tourists named Andre and Thomas at the age of 11. The first one, I did it to one thousand. A thousand shillings, so that's 10 pounds. Yeah. And the second man? The second man. That day, he did it. I did it to get some. He gave me 500. He gave you? 500. 500, so five pounds. It's very sad because my body is the temple of God. Your body is the temple of God? Yes. With her mother's permission, Fatuma showed me the beach where she sold her body to the two white men. She told me about her routine on Sundays. In the morning she goes to church. In the afternoon, her family's poverty forces her here to look for more foreigners. And her mother claims she's powerless to stop her. What makes what I've just heard even more shocking is that it isn't even a secret. It's widely accepted in this village that children are sold to foreign tourists for sex. And what's happening here is happening up and down the Kenyan coast, with thousands of children, possibly tens of thousands of children, involved. There are pockets of resistance, like this girls' football team set up by a Kenyan charity. Its motto, my God is my strength, not my white man. But the school teacher in charge admits that 16 of the 35 girls she trained last year are now back on the beaches selling themselves. They take the, the child of Kenya just because we are poor. They misuse the child. Personally, it hurts me. I feel pain. Any foreigner found sleeping with a Kenyan child should be taken back to his country and never been given allowance to come to our country again. All along the coast, we heard that children abused by tourists are now younger than ever. But we wanted evidence. So we went to Mombasa's only public clinic, specializing in sexual violence, where cameras have never been allowed to witness the terrible suffering within. The sound you can hear is of a six-year-old boy crying out after being raped by a neighbor. Stark proof that child sex abuse is not just a tourist problem. Crimes against children are committed by Kenyans as well. And this clinic is unique in confronting a scandal many would rather ignore. This is the clinic's admissions book, and it reads like an astonishing chronicle of cruelty. Over a thousand children treated here in the last two years. 
and the academic analyzing the daily roll call says their ages are falling, with more and more sold for sex. So the ages we have here are um, 9, 10, 8, 15, um, 10, 6 years old here. Um, that is typical of our clinic. We have 78% under 50. And, um, what, all raped or sodomized? Raped or sodomized. This is all um, violations against these children. How many of these horrific child abuse cases have been carried out, perpetrated by tourists from abroad? The national estimate, um, based on a report by UNICEF, is that 40%, um, approximately 40 to 50%, it's a hard number to calculate, um, are, done, are, are committed by tourists from abroad. On busy days, an abused child can wait eight hours to see a doctor. This clinic is the first of its kind in Kenya, and the doctors wonder how many abuse cases never get reported at all. We don't know what the situation is exactly outside, but we are sure that what we are seeing is just the tip of the iceberg. Do you get a sense that any of these cases you deal with of child abuse end up in court? Uh, basing on our judicial system and the various loopholes we're currently having with evidence collection, we don't have even ev evidence collection kits. So I'd say uh, it's very rare for a perpetrator to be jailed. Very, very rare. In June, Kenyans near this beach took the law into their own hands, hacking down beach huts after a European tourist was accused of molesting nine-year-olds inside. A local campaigner told me that even if the tourist was caught, he could bribe the police to drop the case. Ours was a journey of painful contrasts. The tropical beauty of the holiday resorts, jarring with the desperation of the children nearby. And as we continued our investigation, those contrasts became ever more disturbing. We found Henry, a seven-year-old, molested by a white man in exchange for pocket money, new clothes and a bag of flour. His father wants the police to bring charges, but the police have told the parents that the tourist has fled to Europe and may never return. And in a mother's proud face, we saw a family struggling to keep its dignity. The authorities know there's a problem. Look at the billboards. They hope a new tourist police force will be patrolling the beaches by the end of this year. But this is a country which fears that any attack on its reputation and innocent tourists, the vast majority, could be driven away. We are going to take strict action on defaulters or, or criminals who are taking advantage of young children. Uh, as a parent, as well as a country, we cannot afford abuse of our children. At the same time, if it is publicized, blown out of proportion, it will destroy the same effort of eradication of poverty by destroying tourism. But parents and charities say the time has come for the truth to be told. This church orphanage is sheltering a six-year-old girl who has told her carers about her visits to hotel rooms and being filmed for pornographic videos. And the charity worker who rescued her says the abuse probably began at the age of three.
The doctor said she has some whip-like lashes on her back and uh, she, she had uh, a vaginal injury as well and there was some sodomy as well. And she's just six years old. And she's just six years old. And as far as we know, do we know who carried this out? Who, who committed this crime? She says it was, you know, Mzungus. White men. White men, yeah. Laws are going to get stricter and they can't go back to their families um, pretending not to be pedophiles anymore. And we're going to wind up in jail eventually. This little girl is now safe, no longer refusing to eat, no longer expecting to stay up all night. But up and down this 300-mile coastline, Kenyan children are suffering, their stories still untold. Jonathan Rugman, Channel 4 News, Mombasa. I'm in love, but I'm still sad. I found peace, but I'm not glad. On my nights and on my days, I've been trying wrong. I'm a black man in a white world. 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 I feel like I've been here before. I feel that knocking on my door. I feel like I've been here before. I feel that knocking on my door. And I've lost it. What's really weird is a lot of times, you, you know how we talk about a lot of times like black people get praised by um, elements within white society for having a sort of natural instinctiveness about them um, and shit like that. It's yeah, kind of weird that authenticity, instinct, mm -hmm. emotional, right, truth. right. Yeah. The, the whole magic. And, and, and that lady in the needy for the clip says she, she, she like verifies like, you know, that theory. Well, what's interesting about that theory is it's kind of they kind of go against their own theories about black people or beliefs about black people because they also think that seem to know that there's a sort of naivete there when it comes to them. So somehow we have good instincts when it comes to other things. But um, when it comes to predators within our midst, we can't seem to pick that up. It's like the whiteness kind of blinds us to it or something or other. It's a really weird dynamic uh, with that. But the problem is a have. lot of them don't think of themselves as predators. That's one of the things that kept coming up in the, um, mm. that, that kept coming up in the open secret thing. They don't think that they're predators. Like they feel like, you know, people who don't understand are making them out to be predators, but that, what they're involved with with these kids is something that, you know, the kids wanted. That's something that, that these people keep saying. Like, like one of the guys was tape recorded, one of his victims, the victim uh, tape recorded the guy. And the guy's narrative was like, you know, well, I asked you a bunch of questions first. You know, I wouldn't do it. Like this, this molester 
thought that he was better than Jerry Sandusky because he's he asked the boy first, um, have you ever seen like a grown up penis? And then um the boy next said no, and he, and he whipped out his and he goes, uh, you know, come on, like uh touch it, like, you know, oh, give a blowjob. But then he's when when the boy confronted about him, like, you know, later, this, he was being groomed for like a while and then the the guy would keep asking him questions. In his mind, he he was given consent. Give, never mind the fact that at the kid's age, even if the kid said, hell yeah, I'm with it, which the kid didn't say, you know, mm-hmm. you can't count as consent because he's young, but he had worked it in his head that there was consent and he was not a rapist and he was like, oh yeah, the Jerry Sandusky guy is bad, but you know, I asked for permission before I did um, um anything and he was caught on tape uh, saying that, but also like in slave times, it was kind of, and this is something tricky, right? What you said, they can flip it to justify what they want to do. And I'll say it like this. Part of our authenticity, part of our emotional, um, our emotional um, being in touch with ourselves. The intuitiveness and all that kind of shit. Yeah. A lot of that is also related to our sexuality. Like we're seen as having less um, sexual hangups. Like, oh, white people are so uptight and puritanical about sex, but those uh, dark people, those colored people, and um, they should think about this with Asians, too. They should think about this with Asians and, and Middle Eastern people with the idea of the harem and polygamy. Like, they try to view everybody who's not white as being very less uptight about sex and very uh, also having, like, higher libidos. That's why, you know... Um, when when Wendy Muse was on the show, we were talking about how the descriptors for um, non-white people are always like foods, sen- foods, or the very and the, not just foods, um, sensory, because food mm-hmm. falls under taste, you know, and and texture, like you know, the, like different, right. the different textures and stuff, and temperature, like you know, spicy, you know, mm-hmm. so a different addition to taste. There's like a, a, a heat, you know, they they um talk about us like that and just and different different ways sense, of saying basically that there's an exotic quality to black people would you summarize not, it like that yeah, but not, not just exotic but sensual because mm-hmm. uh, like i said before sensuality means senses you're exciting right. all of the senses uh, five so senses, full sensory and experience like, yeah. yeah and the more senses that get involved in an experience the more sexual it is you were breaking up a little bit. I couldn't hear that last part oh, of what you said. Okay, well, the more senses that get involved in uh, in a sexual experience, the harder and better the sex is. Mm. But it's also what they used to use to um, say with female slaves, you couldn't, and, and Wendy Muse brought this up, you couldn't legally rape them because that increased sensuality, that increased authenticity was supposed to mean they always wanted and appreciated sex. So their libidos and everything were always overheated to the point that you were just giving them um, what they want. And they just like kind of seduce you by just being so sensual and being in your vicinity. Like just having like that big ass and that big hips would be almost like, they would even say just with their bodies, they were, kind of seducing you, but just bringing like that big ass around you. Like, uh, I mean, it sounds crude the way I'm saying it, but these are things that people used to actually uh, say. That's one of the appeals of the uh, hot and tot Venus. Uh, if you ever see the movie uh, Black Like Me, it's a very good movie. If I can find a clip of this particular scene, there's this um, 
white academic guy who is inviting the black guy who's really a white guy in disguise. Uh, do you know the premise of Black Like Me? Oh, wait. Um, okay. Sorry about that. No, no, I, I don't think I've heard of that. Maybe if you describe it. Okay, I can... okay. Yeah, I just noticed you're muted. Um, <laughs> the premise of Black Like Me um, is this white guy who takes tanning pills and disguises himself as a black guy. And he, this is a true story, by the way. Somebody really did this. Um, he decides to do an expose on what it's like to be black. I think it takes place in the 50s, but they made a movie version of it. And so he's going around all these places looking like a black guy and being treated accordingly. And he documents his experiences. And it's a pretty good um, thing. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty good movie. But one of the scenes is, one of the scenes is, um, he's, there is a black guy in this um, place in the South. He's in a diner and there's this white liberal, like, uh, academic who um, is at this place where he's eating. And so it's him, the fake white guy, who's really a white guy, who's really a white guy in disguise. He, he, sorry, fake black guy, who's really a white guy in disguise. And there's like the black woman running the place. So the white liberal academic, very intellectual, very um, cultured you know, guy, he's like a PhD student or something, some kind of academic. He's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm glad to meet you. I'm down here. I'm down here to um, study. I'm down here to study uh, black people and race relations and different things. Would you like to um, come back to my room and we can, uh, I'd like to interview you for the study. So <laughs> he goes back, he goes back to his room. When they go, uh, when he goes back to the room, right? And they're getting drunker. He keeps saying more and more crazy stuff like that, you know, kind of shows that first he believes in all these kind of stereotypes, but in a benign way. Like, you know, wouldn't you say that the I find it so interesting. You people are so less inhibited about sex. Uh, That's really that's really something that us white people are so, um, you know inhibited and uptight and stuff we really have a lot to learn from you negroes and yeah and the and the way you don't li- care about that family structure like uh you know you guys just have kids all over the place and you know you just do whatever and then the white guy the you know who disguises the black guy refutes everything he's like all these studies because the guy's missing all these academic studies similar to the that were similar to the Moynihan report that kind of show all these things and he goes um, you're not taking into account the discrimination, you're not taking into account the different things, you're not taking into account um, the sample size, you know, and uh, sample selection and all these things. So everything that he was saying, he was refuting with uh, arguments about statistics because the guy knew all about statistics. So he's mm-hmm. like, um, I think the guy was just kind of hoping that he'd be a, a dumb Negro. So then he's like, you know, what are you so uptight about? You know, like, 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 what, what are you like? Uh, an academic or something like, oh, like what you are know, you so here? uptight about her <laughs> yeah 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 he, he's, he's like um and then the guy was um the guy the guy was like you know i'm sick of being here you know i'm sick of your 
simple-minded questions because he had been disguised as black for so long. Mm-hmm. He started like really starting to hate white people. Mm. He started like really taking it like personal and really he had a big animosity towards white people. And he started kind of like, you know, those, those deep cover things. Right. So he starts trying to leave. And he goes, uh, come on. You know, I, I heard that, uh, black guys are like bigger down there and stuff. Uh, for, for, for academic reasons. Now, can I see like, like, let's compare. Let's, uh, Jesus. both drop our pants. So then he just loses it. So he's just like punches the guy. And he starts choking, um, the white guy. You know, he's like, you drunk, disgusting, you know, bastard. You just come here. Then you start getting drunk and seeing all this stuff. He starts choking and he starts realizing, holy shit, I'm, uh, I'm going to kill this guy. You know, I'm going to, what am I doing? I'm going to kill this guy. I got to stop. So he stops. Yeah. And then what the guy says, what's interesting is this is like, from the 50s you know i was very shocked to see this in a movie what the guy says right he's rolling your eyes like no don't don't hurt me you know uh and then he's just repeating one thing over and over again in his uh drunken cry in his drunken crying stupor he keeps saying over again i'm not queer i'm not i'm not queer I'm from up north doing research for my PhD. This idiotic segregation, what a nuisance. Hey, what do you do here at night after you've seen the one movie in town? Not much. What's your research on? The urbanization of rural populations. Be a cross-cultural study, a comparison of southern whites, southern Negroes, and Puerto Ricans. If that means anything to you. I managed to follow you. Miss Townsend! interest. I'm trying to write an honest thesis. Come on, sit down, please. Come on, tell me, will you? What your research methods are? Do you use open-end questions, subjective tests? <laughs> are you in the field or something? I managed to read a book now and then. And you don't think there's any difference? The point is, Negroes regard sex as a total experience. Anything that makes you feel good is morally right for you. 
personally. I wish I could live that way. I cannot agree that there is any difference between our morality and yours. Well, how can you debate that? Now, if you'd read the Berkeley study... That's one of the books I managed to get through. Well, then, what about the low value placed on virginity, the large number of illegitimate births, the the general instability of the Negro family? Now, these are all facts, That may be, but I contend that it's due to environment and not to inherent differences. If you will just compare the sexual attitudes of low-income whites with those of low-income Negroes, I think you'll find a definite correlation. Well, that's exactly the kind of comparison I'm interested in. The trouble is, I usually can't find any of you people to talk to. Half the time, all they do is, yeah, are you to death and the rest of the time they can't even get out of straight That's because sentence. you question low-income groups and ignorant slobs like me. Boy, hey, you just got to stick around and answer my questions, Professor. You are a, a fine. Hey, hey, let's have another drink. Oh, no, come thank on. you. I've had enough. All right. Now, the Berkeley study definitely proves that the Negro has more frequent sex contacts, more frequent orgasms. I've read it. I told you. Well, then... You can very easily argue about the sampling techniques. You can question the veracity of the informers. All right, forget about the Berkeley study. Just tell me how you like to do it, John. How often with the same day or what, huh? You've had too much to Oh, come on. This is man-to-man. It's just between us, John. I have a scientific interest. For instance, it's a scientific fact that the Negro's organs are larger, huh? Well, that's absolute nonsense. Prove it to me, John. Hey, we're about the same age. Come on. You think you can say anything to a man just because his skin is black? You're so silent! No, don't! Don't put that noise! You just stop! Oh, let me go! Lee! Basically, this guy, oh, he man. was a closet in the 50s. And he just like felt like no place to express it. He didn't have any type of um, outlet for it. There was no real like community. He was closet. The community that was there wasn't like it is now. Because now, like I think the type of... Um, you, you can find like, a very bourgeois, respectable gay community very easy and have a yeah. good time but i think back then it was still a very uh a lot more shameful type of uh underground community and that maybe he as a middle class respectable guy didn't feel comfortable like with that type of gay community so mm. what does he do he becomes an academic and under the guise of quote unquote studying black people who he gets to both feel superior to you know like the way he was telling the guy all about himself and about how how dysfunctional black people are you know he can also um try to take advantage of them uh sexually you know what i mean and but what's interesting about it was how he had to kind of groom him with the stereotypes first but it was the flip side of the complimentary they were all backhanded compliments you know it was like oh you guys are so much more sensual you guys are so much more um less sexually inhibited i was just gonna say yeah yeah he was kind of trying to make it seem like doing it with you would be different because you know i'm not taking advantage of you i'm not using a thing you want this you would be having sex with somebody anyway you don't even care what you have sex with 
Right. You know, I'm you're not beastial. Doing, you don't care. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You're you're uh, bestial, but human enough that I don't feel like I'm actually doing full uh, bestiality. And I think that's where that's why I think it's not only not a conflict that they think of as a so intuitive and natural. They think that our intuitive and naturalness uh, aligns with them not being able to rape us. Them like you know, he can he can say wow that that black guy his his black bursting sexuality just I'm not even gay. It was just so much sexual energy in the room that just being around him turned me gay somehow. You know what I mean? God like, damn. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's very. I'm thinking about that scene in the movie Goodbye Uncle Tom where the guy um, is, and I'm using this in quotes, being seduced by the young black slave girl. And she keeps trying to tell him, you know, the way that it was written into the narrative, she keeps trying to convince him that she's worthy of him sleeping with her. And he's trying to, you know, he's He's trying to say, no, no, this is not, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. Why don't you go sleep with one of your own kind? And she's like, no, I would never, do, ugh, you know, it's disgusting. Just, no, I would yeah. never want to sleep with one of them. You know, I like you. I'm clean. I'm this, I'm that. And then finally, you know, he reluctantly agrees to sleep with her after she begged him to do it. And I kind of think in a lot, in a sick way, they kind of see those kind of sexual um, encounters as that kind of, in a way, you know, their mind somehow interprets it as, you know, they're asking for it. You know what I mean? I think that scene was very telling. Does you want me, Massa? What's that child want you? What do you mean? I, does you want me, Massa? I's bathed all over and Massa, as a virgin. A virgin? My God, how old are you, child? Thirteen. What? Thirteen, I guess, according to Mammy. Thirteen? Thirteen? But such a child. He's still a child. My God, aren't you ashamed? So young. Does you want this first, Master? Mammy told me sometimes white folks must play with this before they can pleasure the girls. This is madness. What wicked person taught you such things? Just imagine the trouble I'd be in if someone... Oh, my God, only 13, 13. You can't do this to me. No, no, Master, please. Don't send me away, please, Master. Quiet. Please, don't send me away. Please, please don't make please, so much Master, noise. Pleasure me. Pleasure me. What? Please, Master. Right now, here. Your bed is so big. And I'm so small. And if I take off my dress, I don't smell. Do I, Master? I don't smell. If you is really sleepy, Master, I won't bother you. But it's too bad, Master. I like you so much, Master. It would be so good with you, Master. And Mammy wouldn't beat me no more. This is unbelievable. Are you really a virgin? Oh, no, child. You see, if you must do it, it would be better with someone your own age and perhaps color. You mean with a black man, Master? No, no. I don't like black men, Master. No, Master. I can't stand black men. Once, so Mammy wouldn't whip me, I had to try it. He hurt me, Master. Too big, too strong. White man is smaller, Master. Better for the first time. 
and they not smell, Massa. Oh, Massa, Massa, please, please do it to me, Massa. Massa, thank you, Massa. And the other thing is, too, kids. Kids. Really, yeah, kids really like approval, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they do things that is them not knowing better as far as what's going on in the world. And, you know, they're just trying to seek approval. And they don't know that the way that you're, um, like, a kid can tell what you want from them. And a lot of times, you know, mm -hmm. they will give you what they think that, think you, that want. you want. And I yeah. think that was the point of that scene. Like, she knows, like, to survive as a slave, she knows that she's got to choose the least of all evils. Mm -hmm. So she knows, you know, what this guy wants to hear. And she's, I know the exact scene, and it's a great scene, but, you know, he, as an adult, should know right. that um the circumstances under which she's telling him this but you know he just wants the formality of her just saying it so he can say oh well you know like you said mm -hmm. oh well well i guess i guess this uh 13 year old slave girl you know really wanted it and you know who am i to uh i made my token effort to say no you right know? and um, right yeah yeah she but, seduced me with her negro charms yeah yeah mm -hmm. it's, so it's because it's kind of like our our natural um, whatever that we're supposed to possess that that life force also kind of makes them depraved and slum. I mean, it, it's the same thing you see like with Miley Cyrus when she has to go through her raunchy phase mm -hmm. and go out of her Disney phase. She has to do it around black people. Yeah. So then when she she she, she recently did something where she said, you know, I'm through with um, my rebellious phase, and one of the things she did was throw hip-hop under the bus she goes yep. you know hip-hop is very disrespectful to women and everything and she gave the speech when it was ready for her to be uh wholesome and white again and implicit in it was that hip-hop made her do it <laughs> to be like the the it of black people like you know i went through this phase but it was black people and um i think we actually said that at one point before she did that about face and other people have said it as in there's a reason why she's doing this around black people mm -hmm. she's saving the opening for herself to come back and be white, you know, so so and to be a wholesome, yeah. like, you know, she's doing it around black people for a reason. It's an old, it's an old um, playbook, but I want to give a really good example now, and uh, kind of end it on this um, of Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh man, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, and and Tariq Nasheed brought this up on his show, and it was Tariq Nasheed did a show on Devontae Hart, and I knew about this. And I didn't think to tie it into Devontae Hart, and I was so pissed. Like I, um, <laughs> like I give credit where words do, you know. And he brought this up in connection to Devontae Hart, and I didn't think of this example. And it was such a good example, but uh, you know, people know that um, Jeffrey Dahmer, like almost exclusively, um, molested non-white boys, and out of those non-white boys, a uh, disproportionate amount of them were uh, black. Right. He really, really um, was into uh, black boys. What's interesting, though, was I think at one point when asked about it, he claimed race didn't have a reason. But, I mean, I think 
my thing is that he was probably really attracted to um those boys. I think a lot of it is like what we said about, you know, uh if he was closeted or had problems being gay, the fact that he was doing it with uh these non whites maybe made him feel better about it because he's like, oh, you know, because that same thing, I could blame their uh natural bursting sexuality and their wiles. Like, you know, similar to that um um, that girl on Goodbye Uncle Tom, like you know, I can say it's them that made me, um, act extra gay or something. You know, like like mm-hmm. it's easier to be gay with them than with when than with white people because yeah. um, there's too much agency when I do it with the, with the white person. Like I can't I can't blame it on anything except the fact that I'm gay. Mm-hmm. I can't blame it on their um their ways, right? But this is. Uh, but the other thing, which I think was very important is that he knew, again, these are the throwaway people. These are the garbage people. These are the people who don't get the benefit of the doubt. My white privilege will, um, you know, benefit me. And, uh, you know, the story about the Asian boy that escaped from him, that was delivered back to him, right? Uh, yeah, vague. I vaguely remember. I've heard the story in its fullness before, but it's been a while. So go ahead and uh, run it by me. Okay, so he had molested this um young Asian boy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, from Laos, and Laos is one of those places where you know they're not like uh, given that model minority type of um you know thing, but uh he had. Um, tried to molest like the the guy's brother or something, right? Mm-hmm. But basically, he he molested two brothers. The brothers, um, the brothers. He molested one Asian brother and got in trouble for it, and then um, ended up tracking down the other one who didn't realize that he was the same guy. So, um, he. This family from Laos had two encounters with Jeffrey Dahmer. First, um, he sexually assaulted um, a 13-year-old son, right? Um, then he apologized for sexually um, assaulting the teenage boy. Then two years later, they found out that the boy's brother was among the 11 mutilated bodies oh. in his um, basement, right? But he already molested the boy's um older brother right this this is this is what happened he familiar he familiarized himself with the family and um because he molested the boy's older brother he tricked the boy into coming back to his apartment he drugged and molested the boy then 13 then he let the boy escape and actually served time for the crime so he was um served time for molesting um uh, the older brother so now he has a record for um, molestation. When he got out for the crime, he and it was loose. He was ready for more. So this time he set the eyes on the younger brother, who was now fourteen years old too. Um, the family never knew about Dahmer's early release. They weren't notified that that he was released early, and the younger boy failed to recognize the strange man who approached them as the molester of his. Um, older brother. Dahmer asked the the Laotian boy to come back to his apartment um, to take some photos 
And he reluctantly agreed. And at first, Dahmer did exactly as he said he would do, which snapped photos of the uh, youth in his underwear. Again, what have you been talking about earlier in the show? Taking pictures of uh, half-naked boys, um, whatever. It's one of the common things. However, this was only stage one of his horrible plan, which he quickly put into action. I'm reading from a website. After the photography session finished, he drugs him with sleeping pills, did all these acts on the boy. Then he made a hole in his skull, injected um, a type of acid into the frontal lobe of his brain. Um, He wanted to do it to create a subservient zombie so he can keep him and uh, torture him long term. So he tried to give him a lobotomy. Yeah, yeah, and turn him into like some kind of like uh, sex zombie you can uh, keep. The boy, when he regained consciousness, was dazed and didn't seem to react too much, including the sight of uh, the decomposing um, body in Dahmer's room. Satisfied that the teen was, you know, now a zombie, Dahmer left to go to a local bar, leaving the boy alone and guarded. But even in his diminished state, the boy saw a chance for freedom. So the boy escapes like naked he's 14 years old um when Dahmer returns from uh, his bar trip he finds a predicament the boy is outside naked and bleeding from his rectum and two black women came across him uh, named Sandra Smith and Nicole Childress the 17 year old black girls understood something was horribly wrong the boy though fluent in English could only speak in broken uh Laotian in his day's state but his obvious distress caused the girls to call the police. When Dahmer approached the trio, he tried to convince the black women um, to let the boy, uh, who he called by a different name, he didn't want to use his real name, he called the boy by a different name, was his lover and under his care and tried to physically take the boy inside. The girls heroically stopped Dahmer saying the police were on the way. So these teenage black girls were rioters and they were yeah. uh, fighting for the boy. Mm-hmm. Dahmer is sensing the protesting not can go horribly awry. So sensing that protesting now would go horribly awry for him, agreed to wait for them, but maintained that the boy was with him by choice. Uh, so now the cops show up. So now there's two black women and uh, the white cops. He claimed the boy was his legal age lover, despite clearly being 14. He said that, oh, the boy's 19. To explain the teen's disorientation, he claimed the boy was drunk and that the blood on him came from his a skin knee. He told witnesses, as well as police, that the teen became drunk during a quarrel and that he often acted this way when he was upset. And he said he could take the boy back into the apartment. As ridiculous as this um, story was, the police uh, believed him and attributed it to an incident, a domestic squabble between homosexuals. That's how they wrote it uh, <laughs> down. But the black women kept saying, hey, are you fucking, not women, the girls. I should say, even young black girls, kids can see that, you know, this is wrong. They were saying, are you fucking crazy? What are, what are you doing? This is This kid's in trouble. And they got mad at the black girls and threatened to take them in. <laughs> That's not, I'm not laughing. Oh man! Yeah, but, but you kind of have to laugh, you know. And yeah, they they were like, "Get, get the fuck out of here!" We're gonna get. They treated her, those black girls worse than they treated Jeffrey Dahmer. They bring, they made up their minds that uh, they're gonna return to the apartment. And the boy did not want to go. He was fighting, 
instead of taking a sign something's wrong, the police decided to help forcefully drag the boy oh. inside. Um, they didn't even dress him. They just covered him with a towel. And they, along with Jeffrey Dahmer, they basically forced the boy inside with Jeffrey Dahmer's help. Like, they were basically... Um, fighting to help Jeffrey Dahmer. Like, they're basically um, accomplices, right? Jesus, um, Lord in heaven. Even though he was only capable of muttering incoherently, he kept trying to protest. They decided the mumbling was not worth paying any mind. And the two witnesses um, looked on in horror, and one of the black girls, when interviewed about it later, said, he was struggling. He was reaching out to me for help, right? Went to the apartment. He showed them pictures of the boy, those same pictures. Uh, half-naked pictures as evidence that that was his lover and instead of you know thinking that um instead of thinking hey maybe this was um not kosher and this kid's underage they said oh that's fine and um one of the officers noticed a strange smell like something rotten in Dahmer's fridge what it actually was was a decaying corpse still on the floor of Dahmer's bedroom it's right. not even hidden this so if they just bothered to even look around the apartment, they could have seen it. But listen, they escorted the boy to the bedroom and still didn't notice a decomposing body in the bedroom on the floor. And the place smelled like decomposing uh, body, right? Wow. They saw photos of more victims scattered on the floor but still weren't bothered. Then Dahmer ushered them out of the apartment. But do you notice how real white privilege has got to be? I mean, that T, that's a lot of but, fucking layers, man. Like, dude, dude, picture, picture you were him though. Would you feel that comfortable that any of your shit would be believed? Hell no. I would be so fucking nervous. Like, do you realize how many layers of fuck up that has to take, bro, to get that whole scenario to play out? And it did. And can you imagine yourself? getting the benefit of the doubt to that fucking degree. I get nervous even when I didn't do anything wrong. I do too. Grilling me. I do too. Can you imagine doing something wrong and being able to just lie, just knowing like your white privilege. A dead body laying on the floor, rotting, and cops are literally right outside of the door. And the place in the room. bodies. Yeah, and you let the cops, like, I would act so funny and be so afraid of the cops coming in that, you know, that probably would, you know, make it even worse. But he was just like, hey, come in. Yeah, that smell, whatever. I'm white. You believe me. Hey, you know, hey, come into the bedroom with the body. Oh, yeah, he's naked and he's bleeding out of his rectum. Oh, you know, he fell and skinned his knee. You know, he doesn't want to come yeah. in, but, you know, he's drunk. He does this all the time. <laughs> like, how many red flags do you need? They don't do that shit with us, man. When it's when anything with us, man. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and there was child pornography all over the floor of his other victims and they didn't seem bothered by it and the, and the, the final words was him to them was to him was uh, to take good care of the boy then he um raped and killed and dismembered the boy that same day after they brought him back so he injected more acid into his frontal lobe this time enough to kill him then but he sexually abused the boy before and after the injection just mere hours after he brought him inside, and then uh, he was dead. He was dead um, between rape. He died between rapings because um, he injected him again after raping him. Then raped him again after he was dead. Then he took the next twenty four hours off from work just to dismember um, two more bodies. Um, stored the parts in acid. Kept the skull in particular as a souvenir in his um, apartment and. 
it would take months before he was caught when another um more coherent victim escaped <laughs> and told people what happened T. And it's fucking nuts and T. you know what can i uh, can i yeah. in- interject this part <laughs> Listen to what one of the officers said. Officer Jabrish, um, I'm reading from an, from an old New York Times article. Officer Gabrish, 28 years old, a patrolman for seven years, said he and the other officers believed that there was a caring relationship between Mr. Dahmer and the Laotian boy and saw no reason to intervene. We're trained to be observant and spot things, he said. There just was nothing that stood out or we would have seen it. <laughs> I've been I, I don't doing I laugh either but you have to laugh. I've been doing this for a while and usually if something stands out you'll spot it. There just wasn't anything there. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, that's man. not even the worst part. So this is from this is from another article. Right? L- listen listen to this. So Sandra and Nicole, the black girls, told the police that Conorak was a child. I mean, these women are more qualified to be police than um, these guys. Are. Right. So he's a child because um, he's 14. The guy says he's 19. The girls are like, he's clearly not an adult. He's a child, right? And um, they believe him because it's black women telling the opposite and he's white. Oh. They said he's bleeding and he's been, and that he struggled, Right. Um, against Dharma's attempts to walk him to his apartment because when the, when he kept trying to bring the boy back, he kept um, struggling, right? And they were told by the officers to quote-unquote butt out and also to quote-unquote shut the hell up. So they're screaming and yelling at these black... They just... You know how much you have to hate black people? Yeah. You just, you know... Uh, t- t- like, you just so don't want to um, give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, but if they were calling them over for some sexual favors, I'm sure they would have have given them their full attention. Like you know, even though they were black teenagers, like you know, like like I'm I'm sure they would have listened to them then, right? But they told them that this was a domestic incident, and they threatened them with arrest for um, interfering, right? Mm-hmm. So, like I said, they were uh, threatened with um, arrest. But here's here's where it gets good. By good, I mean horrific. Um. So basically, after Dahmer's arrest and discovery of the skull in his apartment, the boy's skull, the story was widely publicized, and an audio tape was released of Balzarek and Gabrish making a homophobic statement to their dispatcher and cracking jokes about having reunited lovers. Having, having reunited lovers. Uh the officers defended their decision to take Conorak to Dahmer's apartment, saying that Conorak didn't speak English, although the black girls could still figure out and had the common sense to know. Oh. Um, that angered that angered Conorak's family, who said Conorak spoke perfect English, having come to this country as a three-year-old. They also said it should have been apparent to the officers that he wasn't 19 years old. Balsarak and Gabrish were terminated. And their termination and took the termination to court where a judge reinstated them. Of course. John Balzarak went on to serve as the president of the Milwaukee Police Association from 2005 <laughs> to 2009. Oh, oh, they, they, they were able to get their pensions and everything. He later opened a tavern. Gabrish was hired as a police officer in suburban Grafton, Wisconsin. The story didn't end there. The, um, the Asian family filed suit against the city of Milwaukee. Some readers might have heard it said that the Supreme Court of the United States has ruled that the purpose of the Constitution is 
to protect the people from the state, not to ensure that the state protects them from each other. In other words, the government can't be sued for failure to protect citizens from right. citizens. So basically, uh, they couldn't even get anything from, not only could they not get these white cops fired, they couldn't even get anything from the state because they said, oh, um, it's supposed to protect citizens from cops, but cops aren't supposed, the state's not supposed to protect them from, which doesn't even, I don't understand how that's even possible, like how the state can't be, the government can't be sued for failing to protect citizens from. No, there's been citizens. several uh, Supreme Court rulings um, in that vein over the years uh, where police officers are not obligated by, they, they are not constitutionally obligated to protect individual citizens. Like they, that's, there's been a several uh, rulings in that regard over the years. Yeah, that's what this thing, that's what this thing is um, saying. Oh, okay. You know, they use the same. They use the same doctrine for um, Trayvon Martin, where they said, like, you know, oh, well, that's a whole different story, and I'm not going to um, get get in, get into that. Um, well, there was so, a- so, so yeah. I just want to say say one one last right. thing. Um, the judge um, for the Eastern District of Wisconsin, 1992, he left no stone unturned in analyzing that doctrine. He's he, the city of Milwaukee used that doctrine in the effort to have the family's case dismissed on the doctrine of failure to state a claim on which relief could be granted. In other words, the city of Milwaukee claimed that the allegations were true, but there's no law to give them uh, redress. Um, Judge Evans explained that the uh, plaintiffs for the, the Asian family were not merely alleging that the police officers failed to protect Conorak from Jeffrey Dahmer, but that they actively prevented private citizens from helping him. Mm-hmm. And in fact, delivered Conorak, um, who was a minor, not to his parents, but into um, Dahmer's um, custody. So he, the judge, thank goodness, established a difference between police inaction and police action. So what, what they basically um, said was, this wasn't just a case of not, um, this, this wasn't just a case of not um, keeping one person from harming the other, you actively stop somebody from saving somebody. So you were actively committing harm by running interference for Jeffrey Dahmer. So after all that, after the appeals, the city of Milwaukee finally agrees to um, pay 850000 to the Asian family, right? Then uh, the public statement said in 1995, uh, the deputy city attorney said that the settlement was a way to avoid the trauma of replaying Dahmer's crimes. So they, they did it for the benefit of the family, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, but they did it for the benefit of the family that they were fighting tooth and nail to give him. Like, you would think you would just, right. like, okay, we, we, after all the fucked up shit we did, after the fact that we rehired these cops, let's just give them the money. But no, they were going to spend money and do appeals and fight just to screwed his family out of the money. Then when they finally had to do it, when, thank goodness, a, a judge on appeal, you know, finally uh, did the right thing. The fact that he even had to go to appeal, they finally break down, given what I think is a pittance. I don't think 850000 is is enough. Right. Uh, I think they should have still taken it to trial, not taken the settlement. But then to have the audacity to phrase it as if you're doing, um, you're doing them. A service. Um, yeah. Yeah. Here's something interesting. Do you know what uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's day job was? 
What? He worked in a chocolate factory. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. I just, like, he liked the taste of chocolate. That's, that's, uh, I find it something fitting. Fitting for the types of victims that he pursued. And... I don't think just, I don't even think it's a coincidence. I feel like there's something, uh, yeah. th- there's, there's some, there's something, um, to, to that. It's, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he got killed by, um, a black guy and, you know, he, he claimed that he wasn't, um, a racist and, ra- and it was like, just like a, a coincidence, but, um, he was killed by uh, a black guy. Yeah, they and shoved a broken broom handle up his rectum or some shit. Something real crazy, right? Oh, did he? I mean, I don't see that. Um, let me see. It says he hit him with a pipe or something. But what was interesting was um, the guy killed him for like uh, racial reasons because he felt like you know he was a racist. But this is something that's interesting, right? Um, apparently, he wasn't repentant at all. Mm-hmm. He would um. He would recount detail, like he would be give brutal, unapologetic taunts to other e- inmates, and he would fashion limbs out of prison food and apply ketchup on places to, um, you know, represent blood and leave mm. those fake limbs for people to um, find, you know. And he was, um, he was very, he was very. Um, unrepented about it. And this is what the guy who killed Dahmer says, right? This is what I found really interesting. He told the people when they asked him why he killed Dahmer, he said, initially the killer left no impression on him. He never interacted with him and he avoided contact due to Dahmer's friction with other inmates. Presumably most of them were black because of how prison is. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if the taunting. Oh, it's Milwaukee. So, you know. Yeah. Then he said, um, that was until November 28th, 1994. Dahmer, 34 at the time, and another inmate were tasked to clean the bedroom, the bathrooms, unshackled and unattended. Scarver, then 25, and himself a convicted murderer, was with them. Um, he, uh, he found that um, he started reading like his clippings. And he started realizing that uh, he had a lust for flesh, and he became disgusted with the details of his action after reading um, a newspaper clipping. Mm-hmm. Um he said that um, he had gone to retrieve a mop when he felt someone poke his back. When he turned around, he saw Dahmer and another inmate laughing under their breath, right? And it, what struck me was Jeffrey Dahmer had a friend in prison. You know, they, they kind of brushed it over. Like, wait, he had a fucking friend? Like, right. <laughs> who'd be friends with that guy? Like, And they're both like taunting this, uh, you know black guy mm-hmm. so it, it, to the end he was like unrepentant and and whatever he said i looked right in their eyes and i couldn't tell which one had done it but after um the three men split up scarvery decided to follow Dahmer to the locker room he confronted Dahmer, asking him if uh he really done the things described in the story and like most uh bullies like Dahmer turned into a straight bitch he didn't have his friend with him anymore he uh apparently the guy he was like you know trying to run away and cop please he tried to escape like you mm-hmm. know so he was poking this guy whatever like like he was a bully he picked on kids or he picked on someone who's outnumbered mm-hmm. right dama tried to escape um scarver then took a metal bar and swung it at his head crushing dama's skull scarver then found the other inmate jesse anderson and did quote unquote pretty much the same thing so he went and found the other guy mm-hmm. and killed him Right, mm-hmm. 
Scarface said that he, be, you know, so, so, um, here's what I found interesting, right? I was like, who was this fucking other guy? Who was Jesse Anderson? Like, why would you be friends with, um, Jeffrey Dahmer? Yeah. So then my thing is, I bet this guy was a fucking racist. Mm-hmm. I bet you he was a racist. Some type right? of skinhead you know? or yeah, something. Some kind of racist, yeah. Like, like white supremacy, like racism is such a fucking pathology. You, you will even bond with a fucking, um, serial pedophile, this, this membering, um, trying to create zombie producing cannibal rather than black guy. Like you will hang out with that guy and play a practical joke and you'll hang out with that guy oh. and have fun playing a practical joke, poking a black guy, you know, rather than hang, like you still respect that guy rather than the, than the black guy, you know, like that's how right. fucked up you are. Right. So I look at this guy, right. And it turned out he was um, arrested for the murder of his wife. When he arrested, oh. when he murdered his wife, right? Um, he stabbed his wife after dinner at TGI Fridays five times in the face and the head, then stabbed himself four times in the chest. Though most of his wounds were superficial, his wife went through a coma and died from her wounds four, two days later. Anderson, who was white, blamed two African African American men for attacking him and his wife, then presented the police with a Los Angeles Clippers baseball cap, he claimed to have knocked off the head um, of one of the assailants. When the details of the crime were made public, a university student told police Anderson person to purchase the the hat from him a few days earlier. I would not be surprised if that student was black. I would not be surprised if he bought the hat from this black kid knowing his DNA was on it. And he was going to try to get that kid in trouble. Like, you know, if they ever find the DNA, that black kid would end up getting Oh, that's a good, that's a great observation. Yes, yes. So, and, and then they, and then someone else um, at, that worked in a military supply store said that uh, they sold him the fishing knife, you know? So, I mean, good for that kid for recognizing the story uh-huh. and the guy in the hat and approaching the police uh, first, you know? But now there's another story that came out. This is the last thing that I end on. Why Dahmer's killer murdered second racist inmate? Right? Uh-huh. So, they, so they find this story. Why did you murder the second guy? And, you know, I found this story. The inmate who killed Jeffrey Dahmer in prison has revealed to the New York Post why he also killed another convict. Because the man defaced a painting of Martin Luther King. Oh. And tried to frame black men for his wife's murder. So this guy knew that this guy was a racist uh too. So he said he killed Jesse Anderson, an affluent white salesman, just after murdering Dahmer because uh, of of what was what what was done with them poking him, one of them poking him. But also, he said that it wasn't just that he had defaced a um, a portrait of the legendary civil rights leader. So that made him a racist in his eyes. So this guy, he didn't he did it because of racism. He knew about. He read a clipping of Dahmer and his black victims, and he knew that this guy blamed black people for murdering his wife and defaced Martin Luther King. What he did was somebody spent a lot of time making a painting of Martin Luther King. The prisoner spent a lot of time doing it and then hung it in the arts and crafts room to dry. Anderson painted a blood dot on MLK's forehead oh. to make it look like a bullet, a bullet wound. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean... 
So there was definitely some some um, white supremacist thought process, suspected white supremacist thought processes there. And then him and Dahmer just end up associated together. I don't think that's by happenstance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like, there's this whole thing with all this story from the volunteer heart to the boy who was neglected, you know, and got his um, mother pregnant. I mean, not his mother, uh, uh, that got his adopted mother um adopted guardian pregnant you know that that teacher and yeah the parents nobody listened to no one listened to those black girls when that asian boy was being killed by jeffrey dahmer that these racists can find it easier to get together with jeffrey dahmer and make friends with him to pick on black people you know like like they can overlook that and the u.n overlooking like it's it's a crazy world man it is a very crazy world think about how all those themes tie together man you have Devante hart who was essentially crying out right and and some of those with some of the information that came out um looks like he was crying out for help it's unfortunate that we have to say that in hindsight but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, hugging, that hugging the cop yeah. and not letting go. And the information that came out about how that was a stage thing. And, yeah, uh, yeah. But him hugging the cop, he might have been afraid to go back to his mom. Yeah. He been crying because yeah. of that. And they showed more pictures of him hugging and crying. Another guy. Random people. Yeah. yeah with another guy. And each time, similar to how, um, similar to how Jeffrey Dahmer always had a story to show to tell white people uh you know about that asian kid the women kept putting captions each time he was shown crying with someone and goes wow look our son just loves hugging everybody he's so full of love it just shows how great the world is you know he's right. like white people that shows you know like they had a story and no one just questioned like why is this kid just always fucking crying and hugging people like you know instead of being a red flag they just took the mother's um word for it that's why he was hugging okay so everyone ignored those signs and then the story that we covered with the teacher molesting uh the black student and and bearing a child eventually the black father went and and tried to report her for child abuse and, and sexual abuse he was ignored not only was he ignored but she was actually she actually resigned from her position was pregnant had a child put it up for adoption this had went on for years and nobody said anything nobody believed the allegations until it was too late and then you have all the stuff we tied in with what's been happening internationally with various charitable organizations that do work overseas the united nations so it's 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 at the personal individual level, it's at global. the global level internationally with domestic, huge foreign yeah domestic and, and, foreign and in, those, in those UN stories too, just like the Dahmer and uh, Ohio um, pregnant lady and Devontae Hart. In the UN cases, there were people blowing whistles too who yeah. were like, um, and, and in their case, not only were they ignored. In, in one guy's case, one guy was severely punished more than the actual yeah. abusers. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it is really, man, I don't know what the answers are, man, but. Um... I don't know what the answers are, but I mean, the one thing I will say, though, is like. Oh, and Holtzclaw. Nobody believed oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. the women. Yeah. Matter of fact, there are people still trying to get Holtzclaw off to this very day. 
Yeah, we we discussed that one too. Yeah, yeah we discussed Mich- Michelle Malkin. I mean, interesting. In their case, it's not white people. Like, I think white people just said, "Oh, he's he's Asian to us." Right. Oh, fuck him, you know. But but Malkin because she has a vested interest in Asians being honorary white supremacists. She's like, you know, hey, no, come on, we uh, we took one for team white supremacy. We want to, we want to be recognized. We want reciprocity. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, then they're like, "Fuck you." <laughs> uh, she's she's crying by herself in in the wind you know and and it's 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 crazy but i mean the the reason why i um put that clip in the beginning of that neely footer thing is like we i think i just don't really question white people the way we question um each other you know we we oh. we don't and in addition to, so it's not just a case of white people giving uh, other white people the benefit of the doubt uh, as far as what their intentions are toward non-white people. We give them a lot of the intention, the uh, benefit of the doubt too, because you have full-grown adults just handing over um, their kids to uh, white people they don't they don't know or barely know or who are yeah. giving off. Uh, red flags and you don't always know what they're coming for like in that neely photo clip when when he mentions uh how would you feel about you know if you imagine having a relationship with a um black guy you started laughing Mm -hmm. you know know, happy about it yeah but then it comes out in the same clip she has a husband yeah and he's not black yeah the the husband's white i think right yeah but but um he goes and Nina Fuller's like, you know, so you're down to have a relationship with a black, and she's just open about it, and it's like, because it's almost like it's not even really like cheating. It's just playing with your, um, it's kind of like how you, in the South, you could rape your slaves. Didn't she say something about she thought, she's thought about it before? Yeah, like, like, and, and when, and when he, I think he, I think she did, and when he brought up like, you know, maybe your husband, you know, he was overseas, you know, in uh, Vietnam, maybe he was in those good time houses, because Nia Fuller's been in the military, you know, uh-huh. messing with non-white women, and she was disturbingly okay with this. She's like, yeah, probably. Like, <laughs> they're both okay with using uh, black people as recreation in their marriage. Like, it doesn't, she, she has no problem admitting that she, you know, would be, would enjoy the chance to partake of a black person. And, and she also has no problem with the thought of her husband just, you know, having sex with uh uh vietnamese hookers and stuff and you know yeah it's like nilly fuller always says for white supremacists the 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 world is their playground they walk this world as gods on earth harming all the dark peoples of the earth and taking advantage of them and exploiting them to their for for pleasure and for personal gain yeah, and I think there's nothing else to uh, be said. That's a very good uh, place to end it. So, yeah, I think I'm going to break this up into uh, three, three episodes. episodes. I think that's a great idea. Three-part episode. Because we hit on a lot of information. There's a ton of links and everything like yeah. that. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Because uh, we count this as one episode. That's a lot of work for the week. <laughs> it's like a second job. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, it sounds good to me, brother. So, right, bro. uh, thanks for uh, going through this. I, I knew it was going to be at least two hours. I wasn't expecting three, but mm-hmm. it was a lot of information, and I'm glad I'm glad you did it. Absolutely. Glad to chop it up with you, man. And hopefully, uh, people get a lot out of this, you know. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, brother. All right, bro. Peace. Later.